Hello and welcome to episode 905 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com and our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hey. I just tweeted that the Dodgers are leading the major leagues in both total number of injuries. They have 53 and days lost to injury, 500, and they are way ahead of any other team in both of those categories. Well, not way ahead. I guess there's the Rockies and the Tigers and the Phillies and the Brewers are all over 400 and they're at 500, but still they're leading the majors and it's kind of curious because of how much public attention they have devoted to injury prevention and research and there's the section of Jeff Passens the arm about how they're hiring a cutting-edge researcher, James Buffy, to uh, try to prevent pitcher injuries. And we've had their former trainer and head of the medical services, Stan Conti, on the podcast before, and he was trying to quantify everything years ago. So it's kind of curious, but maybe not curious. Maybe this is exactly what you would expect the team that is devoting the most resources to injury prevention. You would expect them to acquire injury-plagued players, which they have done. And unless they are really, really good at it, then you would expect those players to get hurt a lot. I don't know whether they would say this is part of the plan. Probably not. But you'd think that it is one potential pitfall of trying to be the team that is really good at preventing injuries, is that if you actually believe it and you think you are good... Then you'll go out and you'll get Brandon McCarthy and you'll get Brent Anderson. And if your stuff doesn't work, then you'll end up leading the list instead of at the bottom. Uh, I think you're presuming a bit to say that it isn't working unless you have a baseline for how many injuries they should have. Uh, it's conceivable that, you know, in fact, hypothetically, they've, you know, signed a club that they expected would have a thousand days of injury, and if they can get that to nine hundred, and every other team could only get it to a thousand, uh, they would be uh, still making a profit, right? If they're getting discounts, if the if injury risk is properly priced into the market, uh, they'd be getting discounts, and you could, I think, say that the Dodgers, uh, if if this is the plan for the Dodgers, um, you could say that the Dodgers are part of the plan is also to be the team that is. Uh, least affected by actual injuries because they have so much depth um, and uh, overlapping risk. Uh, mm-hmm. And so this might not be a strategy that might, even even if they're right, even, it, well, <laughs> even if they're doing this and even if they're right uh, about it, it might still not be right for, you know, the, the Rays to do it or the, you know, Astros or any other team, 26 other teams. But maybe the Dodgers uh, are purposefully using their resources to build depth. Maybe they're purposefully um, investing in depth regardless of their resources. So the injuries are less harmful for them. I'm not saying that any of that is true, uh, but I'm saying that those are all plausible uh, responses that you'd have to, you'd have to look at, right? Yeah. I 
I see what you're saying. I think it would be hard to consider the approach a success if you end up having the most injuries in the majors, right? I mean, if, well, if that's the outcome, then the only way that that's a success is if you built your team expecting to have the most injuries in the majors and it just doesn't matter because all your guys who are hurt are interchangeable with your next best guys and so you you actually have like 40 players who could be on the 25-man roster at any time and so if some of them are hurt it doesn't matter you just plug in other guys and that seems like a, a lot to ask of a team to have no fall off from your top guys I mean they have a basically an entire rotation on the disabled list and I think it would be hard to argue that that hasn't hurt them so well, and, I, and a lot I, of these injuries are things that I don't think anyone can prevent I mean Kenta Maeda was hit yesterday by a comebacker and that hurt him so yeah. that's gonna happen and a lot of these things are just going to happen but you know I mean I think it would be I it I don't know and we don't even know that the Dodgers are so ahead of the game in injury prevention research or anything. We know that that's been reported and they've kind of talked about it, or at least it's come out more so than with other teams. Maybe other teams are just better at not attracting attention. But eh, I I think if you're leading the majors in, in injury days, then something went wrong. I think if you're the Dodgers and you're 33 and 31, then something went wrong. I'm not I'm not sticking up for the Dodgers 2016 effort by any means. Uh-huh. I'm I'm only saying that uh, as with all things, uh, it's easy to jump to conclusions based on results that are you know that take a long time before they it's really fair to judge them, uh, and that there these kind of caveats that I offered are would be part of the um, would be part of the calculus if you are getting guys at substantial discounts because they're going to get injured. Um, that it, I mean, that player's price is presumably rational. Uh, and, uh, you know, say, let's say hypothetically that Brandon McCarthy, uh, with no injury history is a, you know, $22 million pitcher. And so the market decides he's worth $12 million. And if the Dodgers can make him worth 13 million, then that's still a, a reasonable signing. He's going to get injured still, even if he's a $13 million player with all that injury risk. Uh, but if you're only paying him 12 and you're getting 13, uh, then it makes sense. And you you could theoretically build a whole team of guys like that, and you would lead the league in injuries, but you would pay a lot less for your roster than everybody else, and you would have a lot more talent on the field when right. they're healthy than everybody of else. Of course, so, they've got nothing this no, far out of Brandon McCarthy. Again, I'm not I, like the Dodgers are are you know they're bad right now for what they should be. There's no doubt that the Dodgers right now are relative to what they should be doing with those resources are an outright disaster. They're the most, probably the most disappointing team in baseball this year, right? So I'm not suggesting in any way that they're doing great. I am saying that what we say about almost everything is, well, it's hard to say for sure. It's small sample, maybe race. I mean, you know, we just had a conversation yesterday about race searage, uh, where arguably a lot of conclusions were jumped to even after multiple seasons that maybe weren't true. We had a conversation yesterday about uh, the uh, wildly fluctuating success of projection systems from one year to the next. It's very easy to look at it and say, well, the data are, you know, it's pretty compelling. And this is fine. It's compelling data. I'm just saying that the things that would have been true about the Dodgers plan beforehand that we would have said in the abstract 
are still true. I don't think we can say that that it's a bad plan. I, it, you can say that they've suffered a ton of injuries, and that's pretty lousy for them. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it'd be interesting to... I mean, if we had millions of simulations of this season, it'd be interesting to see how they all played out. I agree that right now, whoever pitched this plan in Dodgerland uh, is probably taking, um, probably, uh, you know, like uh, spending a lot of time in the bathroom, trying, <laughs> trying to avoid bumping into people in the halls. Yeah, right. It doesn't seem as if they've had any big breakthrough, <laughs> or if they have, then they've been extraordinarily unlucky. Yeah, although, again, it'd be nice to, it'd be interesting to see the the baseline. Like, I don't know if they have internal injury projections for guys that they signed, but it'd be interesting to see what the baseline would have, expectation would have been for these yeah. players. Just not because it would absolve them, but it'd be interesting to put it into context and into perspective. Care to guess which team has had the fewest days lost to injury this year? This is not uh, a surprise. Really. It's, wait, it's not a surprise? No. Okay. Uh, the team that has had the fewest days of injury this year, I would guess that it's the. I mean, it's not a surprise. So then, um, it's a team that has the Orioles been known for this in the past. Oh, the White Sox. Yes, oh, the White okay. Sox. Seventy-two days lost to injury. Yeah. See that? That's a, <laughs> a that's a good counter to the to the Dodgers thing. Is that? The White Sox do it every year. It's I think it's very fair to talk about the White Sox as having demonstrated something. And yeah. uh, hey, I'm just not really ready to jump to that conclusion with the Dodgers. I mean, we would have another guess might have been the Pirates because everybody talks about how great the Pirates' health is. And as you showed last year, what weren't they like kind of near the bottom for injury days or like you know the bad side for injury days last year? Like it totally flipped on them. I forget. I wrote about it two years ago, I think, and at the time. I don't know. There was there was no real consistency from year to year for most teams. This year, they have the 12th most mm-hmm. days lost. All right. All right. So we're doing an email wait. show. Anything I, else? Wait. I got a banter. Okay. I've been thinking about your uh, interest in a pitcher's home run derby. Uh-huh. You want to watch people who can't hit home runs try to hit home runs? You think that this is sort fun? Of. So yeah. I want to give you a few more potential home run derbies, and you tell me whether you would watch them. Okay. All right. Home run derby between major league managers. Oh, sure. Really? I'd be even more likely to watch that one. Why? <laughs> You've got former players who are managers. I'd like to see how well-preserved they are. Okay. And uh, I'd like to see okay. you know, no, if they're enough. star players who are managers now. All right. Home run derby for major league first base coaches. <laughs> no, I don't <laughs> think I'm watching that one. <laughs> they're, the, they're roughly the same caliber of ex-player. Are they? I think so, yeah. I wonder if they are. Who's who's a prominent first base coach, former player? Let me see if I can find a list of major league first base coaches. <laughs> okay, I got a, I got a list. Wow. All right. Thank you. Thank you, baseball reference. <laughs> All right. First base coaches. Oh, yeah. It's not a great list. <laughs> no. All right. You, your prominent first base coaches would be Omar Vizquel, uh-huh. Gary DeSarcina, Tony, Tony Pena. Great hitters. All. Mike, Mike Aldretti. <laughs> okay. uh, Rocco Baldelli. Okay. Eric Young. Uh, Tom Goodwin. Juan Samuel. Uh, Bill Miller. Davey Lopes. Yeah, those aren't great. Let me try third base coaches, though. Okay. <laughs> Matt Williams. Lenny Harris. Uh, Roberto Kelly. Bobby Dickerson. Gary <laughs> Pettis. Uh, Ron Renicky, Ron Washington. And Spike Owen. Uh huh. Okay. They well, doing it for you? No, I don't think so. <laughs> you 
You definitely get a, a higher caliber of player in the manager's office, right? That's Even odd, Matt Williams but I, is a I former manager, do, yeah. but I, I think you do. If you made some comparison, I mean, you've got you've got Hall of Famers, you've got Paul Molitor, you got Don Mattingly, you've got uh, mm-hmm. yeah. good players. So, all right, uh, any, all right, any others? Yeah, of course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, home run derby of uh, first round draft picks from last week. Well, see, I'm not that interested in draft picks really or i don't know who they are i haven't been following them i'd probably be really interested in that if i were a prospect person or someone interested in amateur baseball as it is these people are basically strangers to me whose names i have read and videos maybe i have watched so probably not i mean there might be individual guys who would be interesting to see but i wouldn't be that interested in who won how many uh before i go on how many of the 30 managers do you think could hit a home run in 10 swings right now with a wood bat all right let's see i'll read them show walter farrell a list okay i take all right so ventura i'd take osmus i guess although not that he was i don't think he really honestly 10 swings is not that like i really feel like you'd be watching for two and a half hours to see two balls scrape the wall yeah like I don't yeah. think I don't think Mattingly would hit one out right now. Maybe not. I don't know if Mattingly could hit one out by the time he was finished playing. So I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, Paul Molitor's got to be what 58. He's 60. 60. Wow. Okay. So 59. Sorry, 59. All right. So. So he yeah, can't hit a home run. Why would you that's... watch this? This sounds like terrible TV. <laughs> I would definitely watch this. I would rather watch them. In a um, like Top Chef style cooking content competition. All right, <laughs> no, um, I wouldn't. Okay, uh, let's see. Uh, stars of the '90s. Sports stars, cultural baseball, stars, baseball, baseball stars, baseball stars of the '90s. Yeah, I'd watch that. Okay, baseball stars of the '80s. I think I'd probably watch baseball <sighs> stars of any decade. You would watch seriously, like if they carted out Willie Mays. And handed him a bat. You want to watch him take ten swings? Okay, I may not want to watch that, but I'd love it if uh, who was it who hit a home run in an old timers game when he was like seventy five? Was it Luke Appling? I think maybe. I'd love to see if someone could do that. Yeah. So it'd be it'd be depressing though at a certain point probably to see how far guys had fallen. But if you actually selected for like guys who had kept themselves in shape and maybe went to a batting cage every now and then, sure. I like seeing retired players show that they can still do something, like Hideki Matsui hitting that bomb off David Cohn over the weekend. And, of course, he's only out of baseball for, what, five years or something. But still, it's fun to see those guys do it. So, yeah. (laughs) Luke Appling really did hit a home run. I I thought this was going to be one of those things where they had, like, the fence set up in shallow left field. No, he hit a legitimate one. And he was how old? 75. Yeah. <laughs> 75 years old. So imagine right. if you could t- see some 75-year-old do that today. And if you're uh, if you're someone who watched him as a kid, then it brings back all these memories. And even if you didn't, then you're impressed at how well-preserved he is. So I mean, right. last one comes from uh, last one comes from the play index. This is your line. This is your uh, your slate. Okay. So okay. home run derby with Ichiro, Ben Revere, Alcides Escobar, Casey McGee, Alexi Amarista, Michael Bourne. Cesar Hernandez and John Jay, the eight lowest isolated powers of the last three years. See, I'd say no, except for the first name on the list. Yeah. If if I took out Ichiro though and replaced him with Eric Ibar, you'd say no. 
Yeah, not interested. Why pitchers but not non-power hitters? Non-power hitters can hit a home run. They, yeah, but they have that option. They're hitters. I want to see people who are not who are very much out of their element. So it's not far enough out of the element for a guy who hits all the time but just doesn't hit many home runs. That's not that interesting to me. I'm more curious to see if if Ibar can muscle up and regular. Like I'm, I think I'd be more interested in that. I'm, I guess I'm probably. I think that the, you represent the uh, the listeners better than I do in general. And uh-huh. so I'm guessing that uh, everybody will agree with you and nobody will agree with me. But of of all of these things that I would absolutely not watch unless Barry Bonds was in them, uh, the one that I would watch the most would be the low ISO guys. <laughs> really? So what would what would the point of that be that you'd want wouldn't, to see? Wouldn't watch it. I wouldn't watch it, Ben. Oh. <laughs> I would watch it more than the others. <laughs> but okay. I just would be curious to know how strong they really are. Like... I I could see it possibly being revealing if they could hit a bunch of home runs when they really tried to. I don't uh-huh. know. Wouldn't all watch. Right. All right. That's all. Okay. All right. So we're doing an email show. A couple responses from listeners to things we've discussed recently. Dan wrote in about our Texas A&M discussion from yesterday, the crowd chant. And he says, as a Texas A&M alumni and a fan of college baseball, I am amused that the world has just noticed the ball five chant. We were doing it when I was a student in the mid-90s, and presumably it had been going on for some time before I got there. If you want to see great crowd participation at baseball games, you will find no better venue than A&M, etc., etc. Regarding the best way to use a crowd to get in the heads of the opposition, I know this for a certainty. The best crowd is a small crowd. The reason is that when there are lots of people around, all you get are the scripted bits, which are good, but with a small crowd, the players can hear individuals. I remember one particular Tuesday afternoon game at which a thin crowd so thoroughly rattled a starting pitcher that he just fell to pieces, and when he was mercifully pulled from the game, looked up to the smattering of fans sitting above the first baseline, where the most vocal tend to congregate, and flipped us off. I didn't get to play sports in college, but on that day I did help determine the outcome of a game. For a large crowd, possibly the most effective thing, though, is just the incessant calling out of the opposing pitcher's first name. It just says, we see you, we know your name, and we want you to fail. And we got another email on this topic from Patrick Dubuque, writer for Baseball Prospectus, who says, The subject of crowd influence at baseball games reminds me of a treasured memory, the 1996 Western Conference Finals between the Utah Jazz and the Seattle Supersonics, RIP. The Seattle crowd, rather than boo generically, chose a different strategy. It's a relatively unenforced rule that a free-throw shooter gets 10 seconds per attempt, and jazz star Carl Malone was a known abuser of this, so the crowd counted off the seconds getting louder as they reached 10. Given the extremely small sample, it appears to have worked. Malone shot 26 for 47 from the line in Seattle in the series, and the Sonics won in 7. This is the single reason why I'm hoping for the pitch clock to reach the majors. My question, would having this single point of focus for a crowd improve home field advantage, demoralizing an opponent a la Texas A&M, or would pitchers tune it out and counting off the clock would be the new scourge of the ballpark, like the wave? It's an interesting... The last question is interesting. I don't have an answer. But I I do think that the the countdown is probably a very powerful force. And uh-huh. I, I think a lot of people, they... I sort of think about the... Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if this is close enough to reality for me to use as an analogy. But remember in Austin Powers, when the... 
there's that scene where the uh, the truck is is moving at the guy. The it's like a big, the steamroller, yeah. Yeah. and the guy is is like pretending it, he's like about to get hit, but really he's like a thousand feet. You know, it's like yeah. very slowly moving. But uh, that sort of is like um, it's uh, it's an exaggeration of the psychological effect of having a deadline in front of you, even if it's even if the deadline is not imposing. Simply ha- having a deadline affects your 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 brain, and it gives you another thing to worry about. I I have a, a child. And so we do a lot of, you know, counting, like a lot of like, okay, you, you have 10 seconds to, you know, to put your shoes on because she's not putting on her shoes. And it's, it's amazing to see how the, the, the countdown really affects her and speeds her up. Like, it's not like if I give her 10 seconds to do a thing that only takes a half a second, she like immediately starts panicking. And like the thing is done by the time I count to two or by the, if I'm counting down by the time I get to nine. And I used to think it was just that she, was too young to have a sense of time perspective and she did, really didn't know how long 10 seconds was or two minutes was and she was just getting uh, you know thrown off by the scale but now she's old enough that she definitely knows how long it takes me to count to 10 and she still just goes into like almost a, a speed frenzy once the <laughs> counting starts and uh, so I think that probably Patrick is right that if you um, wanted to do something like this uh, countdown is a is fertile ground for messing with somebody's head yeah, so we'll see. I don't know if that ever happens at a minor league game where there's a pitch clock, but 20 seconds is less satisfying than 10. You'd actually have to, I don't know whether you'd start counting at 20 or you'd just wait till it got to 10, and then, I mean, no one wants to chant 20 things in between every pitch. I think but, you'd start at 8. Uh-huh, yeah. So that that could get annoying. That could be more like a wave, though, because, I mean, it 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 happens so often. Right. It's not like when a guy gets sent to the free throw line, it's every single pitch and that happens hundreds of times in a game. So that would probably be as maddening for spectators as it was for the pitcher. It's Unless also, it worked really, really well and then it'd be satisfying. It might not actually be maddening either. It might, I mean, at baseball, it's sort of boring to sit in a baseball game and not have many opportunities to raise your voice or engage sometimes. Mm-hmm. And maybe it'd be fun to cheer. I mean, other sports sure seem to like cheering nonstop for three hour, two, two or three hours. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, there's a lot more persistent, constant noise in football and basketball and even soccer. Uh, than in baseball, and maybe baseball is doing it wrong. I would say that the the I would worry less that it's like the wave and more that it's like the vuvuzela or the uh, mm, or the yeah. thunder sticks. Mm-hmm. All right, and Kate says I just finished watching that 1994 classic Little Big League. The movie features not only baffling 90s fashion, a painfully slow home run trot by Ken Griffey Jr. and a hidden ball trick, but also a running joke about fun facts. Somehow I completely overlooked this Wait, in my really? childhood. Yeah. While the joke is, alas, abandoned about halfway through, here are the fun facts provided by the Twins radio broadcaster to add to your collection. Last year, though, he was sixth in the American League at hitting right-handers he was facing for the first time after the seventh inning at home. That's the 14th one-run game for the Tigers already this year. Tops for any team north of the Mason-Dixon line whose home games are not played in a dome. And lastly, Lou, by the way, has hit 416 lifetime versus Hanley in the month of September in even years. These are actual fun facts in the movie, apparently. I don't recall. And those, yeah. I, I'm trying to... I don't know. There's something... It's very closely related, but the statistical minutiae I think of as slightly different from fun facts. Like right. When, it, when people a, make yeah, jokes ahead. about sabermetricians yeah. and they kind of like do a caricature of people who care about stats in baseball by just doing the extreme splits, 
that's kind of the way that you caricature people who care about stats in baseball. Like in the in that Simpsons episode about sabermetrics, they they had an example of a stat where it was just one of those extreme splits, you know, night games and and left-handed pitchers and this inning and this day of the week and that kind of thing. And that's, I mean, I, I guess it's intended to be a fun fact. It's sort of, it's intended to entertain and surprise, right? So I don't know how it's different, but it somehow feels a little bit different to me. I had the same response to this email. Uh, uh-huh. it, it feels like a uh, something that is used uh, to uh, to make fun of either side or to make fun of dif- disparate groups. Same facts, different interpretations of what the flaw is. The f- the people make fun of stat heads for these because they claim that we're using them as uh, as predictive, as sort of right. like you know analysis. Which is the complete and, opposite. Right. Of what and, happens. Right. And then we're claim we're making fun of the media guides for. Uh, thinking that these are, I guess, entertaining. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, probably, I would say that probably in both cases, uh, this is something that neither, uh, nobody who wields these takes them very seriously and they're noise to fill space and we should just be, uh, you know, a bit nicer to each other now that I think about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe. Okay. So question from Dan, a Patreon supporter, and he is responding to our race-earage discussion from yesterday. He says, It would seem to me that proximity to pitch and coach probably does make a tremendous difference to pitcher performance. As with most coaches, I imagine the job of pitching coach is 80% preparation, building pitch use models, more splitters, less splitters, drawing up batter game plans, work them in, work them away, coaching catchers on game calling and in-game strategy, etc., if Searage's genius comes in this phase, one could imagine Jay Happ in Toronto begging Pete Walker to let him do it the way Ray had me doing it, and hearing in return, sorry, that's not how we roll at the Jays. It also stands to reason that assuming it was Searage's approach that made him a quote-unquote genius, rather than his mechanical tinkerings, that after a few years the league would get wise and adjust. Maybe Searage's game plans were true genius, but now they are rote. What was once exceptional is now pedestrian. Maybe the true test will come in the next several years, as Ray himself must adjust. Conversely, his approach may still be genius, but this particular group of pitchers may be unwilling to, or incapable of, following his brilliant leadership properly. If you hand General Patton a platoon of ribbon-dancing bonobos, he doesn't win the Battle of the Bulge, but it doesn't make him less of a tactical genius. Man, have some respect for the troops, if you ask me. (laughs) Yeah. This is one of those sort of uh, situations where I think that the players are telling us where they stand on this. If if players felt like this were true, I think you'd see a lot more players taking discounts to stay with their team. Uh-huh. Um, and you don't really. You don't, um, you don't hear about it very often. And there's not a lot of evidence that if this is true that players believe it's true. Uh, now, that said, players could be wrong. This could be something that's like next level that they haven't figured out yet. Um, and so I, I'm not denying the possibility, but I take the players at their word that it's not significant enough for them to, uh, to give up money. And, and it's really not even giving up money. If they believe it's true, uh, it'd be a short, you know, it'd be an investment. Uh, you'd be spending, you'd be giving up money in the short term, but for the benefit of your career, 
in the long term, which is what they prioritize presumably just as much uh, or most. And so I, I tend to be skeptical of this just because of that. Now, we did talk, I think, when sometime we had an episode after, probably after the Giants' third World Series, where we talked about uh, Sabian's keeping his teams together yeah. and speculating that, oh, uh, yeah, we speculated that the, uh, it's been demonstrated that when teams sign their own players, they generally know what they're doing and those players do better than players that they allow to walk. And we take that to mean that the clubs have an information advantage and because of uh, their access to these players, to their makeup, to their health, to everything like that, they're just better at predicting who's going to stay good and who's not going to be good. Uh, and we had a Sabian episode where we hypothesized that maybe it was actually that players who stay just do better because there's something to the continuity of coaching and setting that makes players actually be better. That It's not that Sabian's better at picking which players, but that Sabian picking them keeps them being good. And so that would be consistent with this. Um, and uh, and I, I could believe it, and I could also not believe it. Mm-hmm. And as for his last question about whether it's the personnel and, and Searage is still a genius, but this particular crop of pitchers is just not receptive to his genius, that to me, that still I think affects the interpretation of him because his whole reputation is built around taking pieces of junk and turning them into productive pitchers. And it hasn't come with the caveat that, well, it only works sometimes, it only works with some guys. And if you're actually acquiring pitchers in part because you think that Searage can turn them into something better, then if his powers only work with some people, that makes it less valuable. So I don't know if his whole reputation is built on being able to do this thing and then he gets this one crop of pitchers and they don't want him to do the thing and they won't do the thing then I think that still affects our evaluation of him. It certainly affects our evaluation of the Pirates system as a whole. I don't think it's fair to say that Searage loses loses some of this reputation if it's only for certain players. It makes perfect sense that certain types of players would be identifiable as better suited for the Searage program than others. And we asked Travis Sochik about this during the Pirates preview episode. Um, and I forget what he said, but, um, it makes sense that part of the, part of what they have to do is identify the right pitchers, not the best pitchers, not, I mean, clearly the, the reputation is that Searage can take broken parts and fix them or take mediocre stuff and make them better, but it's some bonobos, not all bonobos. Right. Hashtag not all bonobos. I wonder, cause at the time it happened this off season, the Marlins signed Jim Benedict, or they they hired him away from the Pirates, and he was a Pirates pitching guru, and a couple things were written saying, well, it wasn't Searage, it was actually Benedict, or it was both of them, not just Searage. Mm-hmm. And so now if, uh, if the Pirates pitching tanks this season, while the Marlins pitching has been good and has improved significantly since last season, then we can just replace all the Searage compliments with Jim Benedict compliments. It was actually a different guru the whole time. Mm-hmm. All right. Play index? Sure. As you know, I uh, I like fun facts more than I like records. Uh, but yeah. I do I do like a record chase. And uh, I like to keep track of players who are pursuing records. And so somebody asked me uh, on Twitter about pitchers who had the most saves in which they struck out every batter they faced. And I wanted to remove the saves from that because who cares? And look at just the question of who has the most what you might call perfect outings 
Mm-hmm. Uh, perfect outing being you come in, you strike out every batter you face. Maybe it's all 27 batters. Maybe it's just one. But you can't possibly do better than striking out every guy you face. And so I wanted to uh, to see who this record was. Now, some records are bad because they're for stupid things. Maybe this is that one. Uh, but some records, not not many, but this record is bad because the results are disappointing. It's a it's a bad result. It's you want the record to be held by Mariano Rivera or Billy Wagner, but because of the way that pitchers are used, the record is held by somebody who's not interesting. And uh, it's it's Mike Myers. Mike Myers holds the record, uh, and Mike Myers has the record because he would only face one batter per appearance so frequently. Uh, and it's just too much of a disadvantage for a pitcher who's coming in and asked to to face three batters. And just to put it in perspective, Mike Myers had a uh, 18% strikeout rate in his career, and Araldis Chapman has a 43% strikeout rate in his career. And if you ask Mike Myers to strike out one batter, well, he's got an 18% chance. If you ask Chapman to strike out three, he's only got a 7.7% chance. And so it's just tilted too much toward him. And just to further expand on this point, Mike Myers has 80 of these appearance, perfect appearances. And, you know, we can't say for sure that he wouldn't have struck out all three batters if he'd been left in. But in his 80 appearances, he has 81 strikeouts. So only once in his career did he manage to strike out both batters he faced. uh, And never did he come in and do a whole inning. Dan Plesak has 75 of these games and only 88 strikeouts. Jesse Orozco, 73 of these games, only 92 strikeouts. Randy Choate, 70 and 78. Javi Lopez, 65 and 73. And you really got to go all the way down to number 11 on this before you find somebody who isn't a situational reliever. Billy Wagner had 45 of these games with 117 strikeouts. So most of those were uh, multi-inning, uh, multi-batter and even full inning. And so I was trying to think of, because I do like this concept. I like the concept of having a perfect, a perfect game, a perfect appearance. Um, and I would like to recognize the, the person who's had the most of them. And, and, you know, the problem is that if you say, oh, well, minimum of one inning or something, well, now you're into bad fun fact territory. Now you've got too many words. You've got too many parentheticals. It's too hard to really grasp. So I thought, well, one way you could do it is you could sort uh, based on how many total strikeouts they had in these games. So uh, then Billy Wagner is the champ. He has 117 total strikeouts in perfect appearances. That's the most in history by a considerable considerable amount. Only one other person has even 100, and he's on 100 exactly. Nobody else has even uh, more than 92. But then that's still a little convoluted too. And so I, I was thinking that it might to have this record mean anything, it might take a multi-year investment in the concept of um, the one of of creating the one inning appearance as a unit of measure, like naming it something. And I don't think this is outlandish. If you look at it, the one inning appearance is the most common um, unit of pitching in baseball now. It's even more common than the starter, the start. Uh, we count starts. Uh, and we could, if we wanted, say that one inning is a thing. We'd, we'd have to name it something a little tidier. But there were about half of the appearances in Major League Baseball this year are exactly one inning, about twice as many as there are less than one inning appearances, and about as many as there are more than one inning appearances, which includes starts and uh, longer relief appearances. So the one inning appearance is a 
fairly established thing in modern baseball um, that pitchers come in and are expected to pitch one inning. And so if we named it, had a tidy way of describing it, thought of it as something that we can put in perspective, we might be able to do it. And if we do that, if we if we succeed in creating the one inning appearance uh, as a thing with a name, uh, now we've got then we've got a record chase. <laughs> because Billy Wagner is the all-time record holder in what what do we call them perfect what 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 do they call it when you strike out of the side on nine pitches uh, Rob Nyer I think immaculate has a name for it. immaculate inning we, so we can't use immaculate but maybe we could maybe we could call um, we can't call it immaculate but, but perfect inning maybe a perfect inning some people use perfect inning just to say three up three down but maybe we reclaim perfect anyway Billy Wagner has the most perfect inning appearances perfect appearances 32 times he came into a game faced three batters struck out all three and then left uh, and one behind him is Craig Kimbrell at 31 so Craig Kimbrell's next perfect inning will tie Billy Wagner for this record that doesn't exist uh, and uh, once he does that we'll have a we'll have a real chase because Araldus Chapman is only seven behind Craig Kimbrell and those two could go back and forth for a long time um, if they both stay good. Kenley Jansen has 16, uh, so he's a little bit further back. Andrew Miller has 13. All right. Let's see. Let me just see. Dallin Baton says, oh, he only has five. Okay. All right. Well, you can use the coupon code BP to subscribe to the Play Index yourself. Get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription at baseballreference.com. And speaking of relievers who have a lot of perfect innings, we got a question from Isaac who says a recent New York Post article pointed out that former baseball prospectus writer and current Cub scout Jason Parks was at Yankee Stadium to scout their big three relievers. My question is why? Considering these guys only pitch in 70-ish games a year, you might not even see them in the game. And even if you do, what information could you possibly glean from seeing a Roldis Chapman throw one inning? Isn't the book on him pretty set in stone at this point? Also, while we're on the subject... Where does the No Runs DMC moniker rank in terms of bad group nicknames? What do you think about the second question? The Yankees nope. are actually selling t-shirts that say No Runs DMC. It's well, it's it's terrible because you can't go first initial and last initial That's in the same. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's yeah, already it's already you've got awkward. Dylan and then you've got Miller and Chapman, so yeah. you're stretching. Yeah, you got to stick to you got it's like what, what do they call that in in grammar? It's like parallel construction or something like that. Yeah, y- you got to stick with a with one convention for your initials. So it's also bad, generally speaking. But at least it's in New York. It'd be worse if it were in Cleveland. Uh-huh. Uh, although it's not in Queens. It's the wrong. No, it's, not. it's the wrong borough. Yeah, I agree. All right. Uh, all right. So then, can you answer the first one? We've answered it. I think we've we've not answered it, but we've. I think we have answered it. Haven't we answered it we, before? We've probably answered it at some point. But, I mean, it's a it's a tough question because every year there's more information that you can glean about players without being there in person. So there's StatCast now, and you can look up these guys' spin and velocity and release point and everything, and you can obviously watch the video. So you can get a very complete record of these players' outings without having someone in the ballpark. So it's tough to say. I mean, you can, I don't I don't know exactly what you can glean in person from someone with large samples like this. We, we know who these guys are. We've seen them pitch. We've seen their stats. We know they're really good. 
I mean, if there were some sort of injury risk, maybe you could evaluate that better in person. If you have someone who is capable of evaluating injury risk just based on a delivery, then maybe you get a better view of that, a three-dimensional view. You can watch someone from any angle you want in person. And I don't know, you can talk to people. You could maybe try to work the crowd and talk to other scouts and talk to people with the team and find out if there are off-the-field issues, character issues, which with someone like Chapman is pretty germane. So you might want to do that. Otherwise, I'm not sure what you could figure out that you couldn't see from afar. Do you have any other suggestions? No, I I don't like that teams do it. Well, and I wish they'd stop. Fewer teams do it now, I think. I mean, there are more scouts than ever, but I think there are not more advanced scouts or this type of scout. I wonder whether in some cases it's just kind of a cover-your-ass sort of thing. Like, you have all these scouts sitting around and the draft is over, so they're off amateur coverage for the moment, and you're thinking of making a move, and there are millions of dollars and wins riding on this, so you're just sort of send someone to kind of just say you sent someone and make yourself feel better about the fact that you had an actual human sitting in the stands and you just sort of check that box. So I'm sure in some cases it's not totally necessary, but teams probably wouldn't do it if they weren't getting something out of it. So I assume there's an occasional insight that you couldn't get from afar, but it does seem like the practice is on the decline. Hmm. All right, a question from Ben Clemens, a Patreon supporter. My girlfriend and I were watching a game recently, and she asked me an interesting question. With runners on second and third, she asked me what the term for that was. I was stumped. I realized that we have names for first, second, and third, bases loaded, as well as first and third, runners on the corners, but not really for first and second or second and third. I'm curious if you guys think there's much rhyme or reason behind this discrepancy, or whether it's just a lack of catchy nicknames. Also, if it's the second, what would you guys suggest? I went with important bases loaded for second and third, but never did come up with a good name for first and second. Well, I'm not going to come up with new names. Any, <laughs> new, any new names that we suggest now are going to sound... All, all names for all things sound dumb until they have... Uh, they are old and accepted. So yeah. like I'm if you, not going to do it. If you just it. came up with runners on the corners right now, it would sound really corny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, bases loaded. Uh, <laughs> even that. And bases loaded is like the maybe the greatest term in baseball. And it's, <laughs> it would sound so, so dumb. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not going to do that. I uh, Well, and there's none for a runner on second. And there's none for a runner on first, and there's none for a runner on third. I mean, there's 24 base out states. How many do? Yeah. How many? How many names can we all hold? So I, I don't. The question is, why did runners on the corners get one? Right, because you don't need a name. You can very easily say first and third, first and third, second and third, first and second. It's yeah. not hard to say. It's totally descriptive. So I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why that name exists. Yeah. Uh, Maybe it's because a lot of things happen on first and third. It's yeah, like a, it, it's a very active state where you can have certain plays and outcomes that you wouldn't have. You can yeah. have double steals and you can have, you know, all kinds of plays put on that you wouldn't in some other state. So maybe that's why. Do you know if the little leagues the little league double steal used to be common? 
like no, like super I con- like I I do you, I wonder if it was if it was the default in say the night you know the late 1900s or or even in the you know the early years of the game if before before baseball players got good if if everybody was basically little leaguers and the little league double steal was was the default and then yeah like you say that is a it is a a particularly loaded play. Um, yeah. or loaded uh, situation and you mm-hmm. might even need a defense specifically to uh to uh to counter it and all that yeah right all right sorry we don't have a more satisfying answer or suggestion well but... my suggestion would definitely be to name it and then 30 years from now we'll <laughs> all accept that name as part of baseball and we'll love it yeah all right we'll probably use it in our normal conversation about non-baseball topics all right, and last question from Zach. Sam has often noted that in contrast to other sports like football or basketball, baseball goes to commercial on TV and radio when all the tension is resolved, i.e. when there are three outs and the broadcast will rejoin the game at the start of an inning when the likelihood of scoring is pretty low. So what if baseball went to commercial at different times? I would propose that play stop every 12 or 15 minutes or whenever, but at the end of an at-bat, and the broadcast go to commercial for two minutes. I can see a multitude of downsides to this, but occasionally there would be a high-stakes commercial break. Think Trevor Rosenthal walks the bases loaded in the bottom of the ninth, but stay tuned. Uh, we're 904 episodes in, is that right? Yeah, this we, is 905. We should re- just rename the show Sam Has Often Noted. Because <laughs> yeah. really, it's true. It's all yeah. this is the sixth or seventh draft of every <laughs> opinion we have. Yeah. Um, I, what do they do in soccer? Because soccer doesn't have play stoppage. And yeah. in the World Cup, like, they don't have commercials. But if you're, I think, jeez, uh, I've watched enough. I don't think they do. But if you're watching just some, like, friendly, because people who, like, watch soccer the way we watch baseball probably watch, you know, there's probably a soccer game on every day, right? So yeah. they'd have it. You couldn't possibly give all that airtime away without commercials. So you have ads on the jerseys, maybe that helps. Maybe it does. And you know, NASCAR doesn't stop, and they have commercials for that. And of course, golf, they have commercials for that. But and so they replay. They, and, right. and that and if something golf, happens, they, like, they, uh, they you don't need to see this. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can, if we can something just catch happens you up later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I assume yeah. in NASCAR it's the same thing. It's the yeah. presumption is that nothing extraordinary is going to happen in the next two minutes. And if it does, guess what? We yeah. taped it. Right. I I I don't think I would like there to be parts of baseball that I didn't see. I, I think mm-hmm. maybe if you did it all along, we'd accept it. But if you started now having me miss at bats and then you only showed it to me if something interesting happened, I think I'd be mad. Like, I get really mad when they come back from commercial break one pitch late and it's a foul ball. Yeah. And they're like, it's 0-1. And I'm like, you guys, one job. <laughs> uh, and so that would probably not make me happy. But you could definitely squeeze 30-second commercials in between batters. But And you do hear that on radio broadcasts. I mean, there they are read, all sorts they of... They read ads, yeah. yeah. So the problem with baseball is that there are unavoidable delays. I mean, there are breaks that you just can't get around because you have to have guys come back to the dugout and go out to the field, and you have to have the pitcher warm up a little bit. And so there is necessary dead time. So if you're just adding more ads in, no one no one wants that. So we already have a time when there have to be some amount of commercials. Yeah, so. the commercials in between innings, though, the length 
of time between innings is driven by the ads, not by yes. the, the, the true needs. I think you could cut right. that down to a minute if you wanted to. Right, yeah. But even so, I mean, no one wants to actually watch that minute, so you're going to have ads at that point anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. all right. I did watch Brain Dead, by the way, if you want to discuss that for a minute. Sure. I had... The new, the new show by the kings, the creators of The Good Wife. I had uh, just three responses to it. One is that I – I know people are, don't seem to like it that much. I don't know how much people liked the movie The Faculty, but I loved the movie The Faculty when it came okay. out. Like I have serious nostalgia feelings for The Faculty. It's like right up there with Can't Hardly Wait and 10 Things I Hate About You in that sweet spot of you know becoming an adult. Uh-huh. And uh, so it's so much like the faculty, in my opinion, that I um, am into the kind of tonal space that it occupies. Uh-huh. Uh, although it is, I agree that it is uh, trying to be funnier than it is. It's really not funny. It's no. it is almost it is written almost exactly like The Good Wife, except with a absurdist premise. That's the the yes. only difference is that the premise is is fantastical otherwise the dialogue is roughly the same the wittiness is roughly the same uh which is to say there are funny lines uh, but mm-hmm. it's it's not madcap uh for the most part um the fact that the senator uh the uh republican senator is named Wheatus is a uh-huh. strange choice because there's no way that that is not a reference to the band Wheatus, right <laughs> i guess <laughs> i mean what are the odds that you that you accidentally name somebody Wheatus? Yeah, but right. are we to believe that they really wanted to? It also seems imp- impossible that they wanted to name their senator after the band Weedus. Like, why Weedus? Why now? Yeah. So I don't know. I am really. I guess what I'm saying is I'm really stuck on that character name, and I wish for anything but him being named Weedus. And the maybe last thing, just weird. I mean, maybe they're just weird. Uh affiliations to a band you like and you just want to stick a reference in like i was just reading about the first season game of thrones character and book character merillion he's the guy he's a singer and he comes and he makes fun of the lannisters and then he gets his throat cut out and there's a a british rock band from the 70s and 80s like a pretty popular post-punk band called merillion and i assume that's probably a reference you would name your singer after this band Maybe you just like a weird band and you want to stick a character name in there and you think that it won't be so obvious because not enough people know the the band for it to really stick out. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's something like that. All right, whatever. (laughs) The other thing, the last thing is that I find it – I think that um, it's almost impossible to be cool when you have animated ants. To me, animated ants marching in in file – in a single file – uh, is like a Smucker's commercial from like the early 90s. It's just, it looks bad. They shouldn't have done it. They should have had any plot device other than cartoon ants marching. Yeah, yeah. It's it's tough for me because I just finished watching a show called Fortitude, which was out last year. And it's, uh, it's a sort of a similar story where Brain Dead is about kind of this, it follows this staffer on the hill and she starts this new job and she finds out that Everyone is being taken over by aliens, these little ants that march into their ears and tell them what to do. So I just watched another show called Fortitude where 
little parasites go into you and start controlling your behavior. And it's a really creepy show. And so I've had my fill of that mechanic for right now. But I think my, it was weird because there are lots of good wife echoes in the show and it's almost distracting because the music sounds very good wifey and David Lee from Good Wife is in the show and all the offices look like Good Wife offices. So I kept thinking, is that Peter Florick's office? Is that Alicia's apartment? I don't know whether any of them were, but they all had the same appearance. But I think the main problem with the show was that I couldn't really, you mentioned its tonal space. I couldn't figure out what its tonal space was, which I, not that it has to be pinned down to any one thing because Good Wife was a drama and it was serious, but it was also really funny and it had heartwarming moments and it had everything. And this show, I couldn't tell whether it was, I mean, it was part satire and part kind of campy farce. And yeah, there's part, like a Mars Attacks vibe to it, right. too. And, and I Mars wasn't Attacks sure. horrible. Yeah, and maybe it's it's just one episode. It's the pilot, and pilots are hard, and maybe they just didn't quite nail down the tone yet, and maybe they will. But it was, I couldn't really tell. And, and there was, you know, an investigation, like almost an X-Files aspect to it also, and so I'm not sure which way it's going to go, and maybe it'll figure that out eventually. I'm not sure if I will stick with it long enough for it to figure that out before I quit, but I'll, I'll watch a little longer just to just to see if it was pilot growing pains. Yeah, I respect them doing a goofy show, kind of. I mean, they had they had that whole darkness at noon thing going on in The Good Wife where you could tell that they... Uh, they were res- they were responding. They were criticizing uh, the the sort of signifier aspect of prestige TV, where you like have to be super serious, and your the seriousness of your TV defines you uh, yeah. as a pop culture consumer. And so, having something that is like light and uh, you know intentionally uh, broad uh, seems true to their convictions. I, I respect it. And, uh, I didn't, I certainly didn't hate the first episode. I agree with you. I think that the pilots are often not great, not even always representative of the show. Uh, Mm -hmm. and, uh, I think that there's some work to do though from this. Yes. Okay. So that is it for today. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have done so are Ryan Lemon, Ryan Monahan, Tyler Larson, Carrie Breen, and Ben Axelman. Thank you. You can buy our book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, our wild experiment building a new kind of baseball team. Go to our website at theonlyruleisithastowork.com for more information or to purchase the book, perhaps for a baseball-loving father, if you happen to have one are in need of a Father's Day gift. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild and you can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Keep the questions and comments coming to our email account podcast at baseballperspectus.com. You can also reach us by messaging us through Patreon if you are a Patreon supporter. We will be back tomorrow. So-